Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in 1st Timothy 5, starting into a long and important discussion of the treatment of widows in the early church in verses 3 through 16. This was a really big problem for the early church, and it was a cultural problem as well, given relatively early marriages for women, shorter lifespans for men, and tremendous financial insecurity compared to our our own times. I mean, imagine life without Social Security, pensions, or just the general lack of economic development compared to today, especially in developed economies. Now, this question had been strongly addressed in the law, along with provisions for orphans and aliens or foreigners as the most vulnerable in society, here without a husband and potentially without a family or a home. A number of general references here are useful. Exodus 22, 21 through 24. Do not mistreat or abuse foreigners who live among you. Remember, you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not mistreat widows or orphans. If you do, they will beg for my help and I will come to their rescue. In fact, I will get so angry that I will kill your men and make widows of their wives and orphans of their children. Serious matter indeed. Deuteronomy 10:18. The Lord defends the rights of orphans and widows. He cares for foreigners and gives them food and clothing. And then an interesting combination of God's provision and their participation in Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, they call down curses on those who keep the poor from getting justice, particularly when the poor are foreigners, widows, or orphans. There were also institutions put in place under the law. Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29 describes the Levitical tithe, which cares for widows and orphans. Deuteronomy 24, verses 17 through 22, sets up the institution of gleanings, where you would leave some of your crop behind for the vulnerable to pick. And then you've got the fascinating idea of leverate marriage, where if one's brother died, then the brother-in-law was responsible for marrying and taking care of the woman, even to the point of fathering children. Most famous examples of this in the scriptures are Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, and of course, the book of Ruth with Boaz. This was also addressed by the prophets when the vulnerable were being mistreated. The famous Isaiah 118 
Come now and let us reason together. Your sins are like scarlet, but they will be made whiter than snow. Comes in the context of similar injunctions. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves clean. I hate your filthy deeds. Stop doing wrong. Learn to live right. See that justice is done. Defend widows and orphans and help the oppressed. Later in the same passage, bracketing this, verse 23, your leaders have rejected me to become friends of crooks. Your rulers are looking for gifts and bribes. Widows and orphans never get a fair trial. Another good example is in Malachi 3.5, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. It was also a prominent piece of Jesus's ministry and teaching. Consider Luke 7, 11 through 15, the resurrection of the son to help the widow of Nain. He uses a widow as an example in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 of persistent prayer. It talks about the widow's offering of two mites in Mark 12, 41 through 44. And then as a practical example, John 19, 26 and 27, even on the cross, he's concerned that John would take care of Mary. Probably the most direct reference is in Matthew 15, 3 through 9. Jesus replied, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so this was the idea of Corban that the Pharisees had translated into the idea that they didn't have to help their parents. And that would include, presumably, even in the case of widowhood, as we'll be talking about today. So the early church inherited much law and tradition from the Jews. It was reiterated by Jesus, and so it was addressed by the early church. Acts 6 is the greatest story on this, where deacons get their start. The term is not used, but the office and the practices of deacons begins there. And probably the most powerful expression of it is in the great verse, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And we're pretty good with the last part of that verse. Let's avoid being polluted by the world. But pure and faultless religion includes taking care of the orphans and widows in their distress. Now, it's usually taken to be the case that what Paul will be addressing here is traditional widowhood when the husband has died. Another possible angle is a renewed critique of polygamy, We don't know much about how the early church handled this, but it certainly has contemporary application to cultures today where polygamy is practiced, and often the wisdom that is embraced is of divorcing the other wives, but then what happens to them? And so you got a very thorny issue here. And if you're going to mandate divorce, if that's the conclusion, then you've got to find a way to deal with those who are no longer married. So this introduces a lot of interesting challenges for the church, balancing responsibility with generosity, especially identifying those who are really in need so the church could more ably assist the truly needy. 
And you've got matters of stewardship here, what economists call scarcity. We have limited resources, time and money, and we have infinite things we can put them into. How do you use the resources of the church and those in the church to help those who are truly needy? How do you balance that with the other considerations within the church and its ministry of evangelism and discipleship? And there's some big challenges here. In particular, Paul is concerned with the widow's need for support and their qualifications for ministry and service to fulfill the purpose for themselves and the mission of the church. So there's lots of stuff going on here. We've got both the giver and the receiver. We have scarce resources, what to do, how to help those live out the mission that they have for their own lives through Christ Jesus. What does that look like? And if we give too much assistance, then we've got problems with scarcity, what those other resources could be used for, and it may diminish what the recipient is able to do because they're tempted with the resources they're being given. As we get into this, we'll also be able to extend it to welfare policies with respect to the government. As a labor economist, someone who's invested a lot in researching and writing about poverty, welfare, and the like, this is a topic of great importance to me. But notice that's an extension. What Paul is talking about here is the church's treatment of widows. That is a private sector matter, not the public sector It's an in-house discussion of dealing with believers, not the world's dealing with whatever it wants to do with those outside the church. And then within the church, we also have some applications to helping other vulnerable people and what that looks like. How do we help people recovering from addiction? How do we empower people to become leaders? That's been a prominent thought for Paul here in 1 Timothy. How do we help children become adults? How do we help the disabled be as productive as possible? How do we help the alien become established in society? In theory, these are things that are pretty easy to do. Well, yes, we want them to be productive, but every case is different. And so it becomes really challenging to do this stuff in practice. Principles in this passage will help us understand all of those, but he's focusing on the treatment of widows. Okay, so that was a long introduction, but there was much to be said to set the table for this important discussion. Before we get into the passage, let's take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org, and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, I gave an introduction to Paul's treatment of widows in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. Although the focus of Paul is the treatment of widows, there is broader applicability to all sorts of things, from welfare policies by the government to in-house discussions about how to empower versus enable people, how to put the scarce resources of the church and its members to use, And what's best for individuals, both the giver and the receiver, and for the church as a whole? And the matters are quite complicated. This is something of great interest to me professionally. I've written a great length about poverty, welfare, and assorted other policies. You might be interested in my books on this, Poor Policy, How Government Harms the Poor, and Turn Neither to the Right Nor to the Left, A Thinking Christian's Guide for Politics and Public Policy. Let's get into the text we have 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8 is the first section. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. 
The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So in verse 3, Paul starts with the foundation of his argument, and I think it's a somewhat surprising opening. We might expect him to say, give proper material support to those widows who are really in need, or something like that. But instead, it's give proper recognition to them. Literally, the word here is honor, which implies respect, but beyond that, of course, is going to imply something about financial and material support, but it also tells us what's at stake here. It's not merely money that's at hand. Ultimately, it comes back to honor and recognition. It takes us back to the fifth commandment, which is to honor our parents. And of course, this is a bit broader than that. We're talking about widows in the church beyond a merely family responsibility. But we're to honor those who have come before us, those who have supported us, and it is a great honor to us to honor them. Barclay says sacred duties are often pushed onto the state. We expect public charity to do what private piety ought to do, honoring the recipient. It's an admission of the claims of love, repaying love given in times of need. I'll have more to say about government as we go along, but this is perhaps at the bottom line something for the state to cover, but only if it's not being covered at the personal level, and for those in the church, that must include taking care of our own. And it is honoring the recipient, and it is admission of the claims of love that we are repaying that which has already been done for us, not just God for us, but what other people have done for us as well. Now, if honor and recognition is the most important phrase in terms of providing a foundation for what follows, another really important phrase is at the end of verse 3, And at the beginning of verse 5, the NIV renders it really in need, not just in need, but really in need, which takes us to not just the reality, but perceptions, not just those who claim to have need, perceive that they have need, but people who are really in need. Marvin Olasky, 30 years ago, wrote a great and really influential book called The Tragedy of American Compassion. You may know Olasky as the editor long time of World Magazine, a Christian public policy magazine, sort of like Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report. And his book actually shaped the big welfare reforms in 1996, arguably the largest uh, significant reform we've had in the last 25 years in terms of public policy. And Alaska has seven pillars in that book that go from A to G, And C and D have always stuck with me. C stands for categorization, and D stands for discernment. And Olasky applies this to both private charitable efforts and to government welfare. The idea behind categorization is that there are different reasons why people are poor, and there are different types of poverty, and the geography of poverty is different. So, for example, generalizing the poverty in Cheyenne, Wyoming is different than what you find in Lexington, Kentucky, or Appalachia, or the Deep South, or urban New York. And more specifically, the reasons why people are poor can be different. Sometimes it's a lack of childcare so that they can't work a job. Sometimes it's lack of job skills. 
Sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's a kick in the pants. Sometimes it's encouragement. The reasons people need help need to be categorized. And then D is for discernment. Discerning those things is essential to provide an effective solution. In terms of our tongue, one of my life verses is Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And the same thing is true with respect to poverty. According to their needs is important. And the recipient has responsibilities. In the Ephesians 4.29, it's those who listen, those who follow the instructions. And there's an implied need here as well that Paul is talking about. Those who are really in need implies some are not in need and will not need to be cared for. There's some other prescription that is ideal in their circumstances. So back to Paul's immediate context, for example, if there's no dowry or inheritance for these widows to depend on, then they're more likely to be really in need. But Paul also specifies in verse 4, they have no family to care for them, particularly children or grandchildren. Verse 5, he doubles down on this and says they are left all alone. If they do have children and grandchildren, verse 4 continues that they should put their religion into practice. Talk is cheap. We love others, the fifth commandment, honoring parents and the like. And so we put our religion into practice. It's not just a said faith, but a faith that implies sacrifice, obedience, service, and the like. Verse 4 continues, so repaying them. Again, as the Barclay quote says, we have been paid in spades in terms of love by God and others. And so this is an opportunity to repay the vast and amazing love that we've been given. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And that's the ideal, but it doesn't always work out that way. Theologically, we would think of the idea of prevenient grace. It's grace that we can even accept the grace of God. So we talk about our free will and our part in salvation, but it's a grace that God even allows us that opportunity. And so whatever our relationship to parents and grandparents, this is an opportunity to repay the love of God and the love of others that has been extended to us. Biblically, the best example of this is the relationship between Joseph and Jacob Early in Joseph's life and late in Jacob's life, you have a period of 17 years in both cases with Jacob caring for Joseph and then Joseph caring for Jacob. Verse 4 also has the phrase, it's pleasing to God. And if it's pleasing to a good and great God, then it must be good for us too. So it's good for the recipient. It's good for the giver. It's pleasing to God. Can't beat that. But there can be a failure to do these things. And Paul addresses that in verse 8. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. And so Paul uses the language in this verse of denying the faith, and de facto, that is the case. You're denying the faith if you fail to act in a particular way that the faith commands, that the faith dictates, that the faith lays out is good for us, good for others, and good for God. Since the most important implication of our faith is love of others, then a failure to do so is going to invite some difficult questions. Titus 1.16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. It's a very harsh language here, but keep in mind that this is a violation of the third commandment. We're wearing the name of God and therefore misusing it 
when we don't obey in these fundamental matters. We're used to the idea of trying to figure out whether people are saved or not by their actions, not that we can judge harshly or with great dogmatism. Think of Matthew 7. But for those that we're close to and for us ourselves, if we're not acting in a way that is consistent with the faith and is fundamental to the faith, it invites these difficult questions. And we're used to thinking of that in terms of repetitive sin or carnal sin. But it even applies here. If we fail to love those put in front of us, is the love of God really in us or not? Paul says in verse 8 that they're worse than an unbeliever, and this is probably hyperbole, but there's a sense in which it's literal since it implies hypocrisies. And even unbelievers understand and largely follow this principle. So yes, if we fail to be effective in a way that the world is, when we claim the love of God, it doesn't make any sense. This also takes us back to chapter 3 and the requirements for deacons and elders and the responsibility that is first for them in terms of their household. If you're not running your household well, then you can't run a church well. And the household includes those who would be widowed or orphaned within those nearest to you. The Catholic idea here is subsidiarity, and the Protestant version of this through Abraham Kuyper is called sphere sovereignty. That term's a little easier for us to handle, so I'm going to play with that a little bit. Sphere sovereignty is the idea that we have sovereignty over the spheres closest to us. And so that should be immediate family, and then if not, then distant family, and then if not, then your neighborhood group or the larger church or whatever. And then those circles, those spheres extend outward. And this has great application to charity and welfare, that we need to take care of those closest to us first. And then as there are failures in those systems, then the responsibility evolves out to larger and greater spheres. Now, the recipient has some responsibilities as well, and that will be a big part of what comes after this passage, but he does touch on it here. Verse 5, he talks about her putting her hope in God and continuing day and night to pray and to ask God for help. So there are spiritual criteria in addition to the material conditions that allow for the charitable efforts. Verse 6 provides another comparison. A widow who lives for pleasure may even allude to prostitution, but in any case is not living a life consistent with God and what the church requires. She is dead even while she lives. So rough language, but again, back to the idea of categorization and discernment, such things are not to be subsidized. Often in matters of poverty, you'll find people citing Matthew 25, starting in verse 35, about the liberality of Jesus's words at that point. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink, and so on, as if that verse by itself is a sum total of what's said in the scriptures. Well, again, we go back to the Old Testament law, and we have Paul's words here, and it's clear that categorization and discernment are part of it. It's not strictly liberality that is the only condition of giving. Paul will continue to develop this idea throughout chapter 5 and then on into chapter 6 with respect to the wealthy. Tony Eslin talks about how welfare and charity are a strange harmony between one form of worldly covetousness and another, the amassing of private fortune and a mechanical and mathematical redistribution without regard to the human person. Catholic social teaching sees both forms of materialism as evil from the root. So you can get materialism from either wealth or poverty, themes we will continue to develop in these last two chapters. The last thing to develop from this passage is in verse 7, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. 
Here, Paul seems to have two things in mind, that the instructions are to the widows to maintain their individual responsibility and to avoid an entitlement or rights mentality. Through this verse, we would also infer that there's a call for the church to develop a corporate program and to preach individual responsibility with respect to giving. Individuals have a responsibility, but churches do as well to handle this appropriately. We'll have more to say about both of these in the next segment. Lord, help us to be good as recipients and as givers as we live out the love of Christ in community in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. The previous two segments, I covered 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 8. A great passage if you haven't read it recently. It sets the table for what we're going to talk about in our segments today. Verse 3 talks about giving proper recognition or honor to the widows who are really in need. And we talked about how the honor recognition is at the foundation of what Paul's going to talk about, how important this is. And then the second phrase, who are really in need, implies there are those who are not in need, and thus the need for categorization and discernment by individuals who are trying to help or churches who are trying to help. Verses 4 and 8 talk about the responsibility of family first, what we defined as sphere sovereignty, a phrase from Abraham Kuyper, that family should take care of this first, and if not, then the church. The widow herself has responsibilities, verses 5 and 6. And then verse 7 ends with, give the people these instructions to avoid blame. And so it's important for widows and the church and individuals who are giving to handle these things well. So that takes us to how churches would then look to implement this. What are the particulars of the program? And so we look at what Paul says to Timothy, starting in verse 9. We'll read verses 9 and 10. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. So the first interesting reference is early in verse 9 about a list of widows. John Stott suggests the beginnings of a defined group, but here it's probably an informal setup. But at least by the end of the second century, there were official orders of widows that this would describe really well. So the list implies long-term rather than short-term help and formal rather than piecemeal help with some accountability, back to the ideas of categorization and discernment that I've talked about in the last two segments. These are important distinctions because often individuals and churches try to go about things in a way that is opposed to this. They engage in purely short-term efforts rather than long-term. The efforts are quite piecemeal rather than formal, developed with some energy and strategy behind them, and there's no sense of accountability discernment, categorization, and the like. There are some interesting efforts here when you talk to churches trying to help the poor and the needy, and often they coordinate their efforts. And this is important. If we're really trying to help people, we don't want them to bounce from one uh, charitable opportunity to another to mooch their way through life. We want to help them develop, to be empowered, and the like. And so some effort at strategy and coordination is worthwhile. It's not simply a matter of vomiting resources, handing stuff out to people, worrying about the next meal. That is not the only thing that the church should be worried about. The goal should be long-term 
we should be strategic and we should be using wisdom, accountability, categorization, and discernment. Barclay finds seven criteria in the list here. Wife of one husband, reputation, they had nourished children, hospitable to strangers, washed feet, look at a text note if you have a different translation there, help those in trouble, and devoted to good works. You know, one thing that comes from that list is that it's very much like the deacons that we talked about back in chapter three, and at least people who are helping the needy are implicitly ordained to do something like that, especially to help other women. These widows will be helping women in a way that is ordained, maybe not literally, but ordained by the scriptures, by Paul, to help each other, to help others who are in greater need than they are. Another way to package this is to reduce it to three conditions for inclusion. The first would be age. Verse 9 describes that they should be older than 60. Younger widows could certainly serve in this way, but they should not make the list. Paul will talk about them and have different recommendations for them in verses 11 through 16. Second, marriage has been or having been faithful to her husband. Again, this is translated like we talked about in chapter 3, a one-man woman, someone who was faithful to her husband. Again, there are a range of possibilities in how to translate this, but in the context, it seems figurative for the faithfulness within the marriage that she's had, especially given Paul's counsel in verse 14 that the younger widows would remarry. In other words, if remarriage was problematic, he wouldn't be telling the young widows to remarry a few verses later. And then in verse 10, what might be summed up as effective service. She's well known for her good deeds. For example, raising children, hospitality. Again, that's on the list for deacons and elders. Washing feet, whether literally or figuratively. We see Jesus doing that with his disciples in John 13. And we have Luke 7, 44 with the prostitute washing Jesus's feet in front of the Pharisees helping those in trouble, and in general, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Notice that it says she's well known for her good deeds, and it's interesting to me that Paul keeps coming back to this. It's not just character, it's not just the actual, but it's a matter of reputation. Notice that this list is necessarily about past behavior, but presumably it's correlated heavily with future behavior. You have the prayers mentioned in verse 5 and the long list of works here that she would presumably continue to do as a devoted widow. Paul will have particular advice for them in the third pastoral epistle, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God sort of implies a transaction of sorts, which is interesting. We talk about grace and gifting, but for those who are capable of returning the favor, it is expected. And for these women, they are expected to provide some level of service in return for the material support that they are receiving. Now, you read a list like this, and you're tempted to try to put things into a box and imagine that all of these are zero ones, that you meet this criterion, you meet this criterion, and then you're good to go. But in practice, it's not going to be that way. There's going to be a spectrum of both levels of need and usefulness of ministry that's going to make this somewhere between messy and interesting. In both cases, you're trying to preserve and promote dignity where possible. If someone's need is not that great, then the support should not be that great. 
If the usefulness in ministry is lesser, then you don't expect as much. So in practice, as ministers are looking to put this into practice, then it's going to be more interesting and more need to depend on the Spirit. John Stott says each should have the opportunity both to receive according to their need and to give according to their ability, that is, both to be served and to serve. Think of 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And that's speaking of an unwillingness there. But people should be able to do what they can do, and they should be encouraged to do so by the process and by the people. So let's move on to verses 11 through 16, the instructions for the younger widows. Paul writes, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Verse 16 is a summary verse. I'm going to take care of that in the next segment, but I want to work through verses 11 through 15. So Paul is quite clear in verse 11 about the rule and the reasons for it. Do not put them on this list that he just described in verses 9 through 10, because later in verse 11, they will likely want to marry again, and their sensual desires are overcoming their dedication to Christ. But verse 12, they've broken their pledge, literally broken their faith. Here, speaking of the vows they would make to serve Christ, Paul talks about that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35. And then as a result of the vow, not the marriage per se, but as a result of the vow they'd made, they would bring judgment on themselves. So the context here is a rash vow after the death of a spouse, and practically this would allow them to be supported by the church, or maybe it was a spiritual commitment that they wanted to devote the rest of their lives to Jesus. But, Paul says, it's likely that the sensual desires would overcome that dedication, and they would put themselves in a difficult or terrible position. Paul gives a second reason in verse 13. He says they will likely get into the habit. There's a bad nun pun in there, if you're interested. Uh, in the habit of being idle, gossips, and busybodies. He's going to warn against this again in 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So Paul is generalizing here about younger widows and pointing to a subset of those who get themselves into all sorts of trouble, and that's to be avoided by not putting them on the list, not allowing them to dedicate themselves formally to Jesus by putting them on the list. Now, of course, they're called to serve in the ways that Paul has just described in verses 9 through 10, but that doesn't mean putting them on the list. In terms of idle gossip and busybody, Matthew Henry says it is seldom that those who are idle are idle only. So idle hands lead you to other problems. Walverton Zook says too much time with not enough to do is dangerous for anyone except those too old to get into trouble. 
And I've got an exclamation point after that in my notes. I don't remember if they were being tongue-in-cheek when they said that, since they were older guys writing that. But Paul does seem to share that basic idea here, that there's a difference that's worth noting between younger widows and older widows. Paul's counsel then, verse 14, is to marry again. So we're back to 1 Corinthians 7, and that crucial passage for understanding the context of these sorts of things, that they should raise their children, manage their homes, and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Here the enemy could be either the devil or the opponents of the church, or combining them, as Paul did in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And then, sadly, he points to verse 15, those who had already fallen, who have turned away to follow Satan. I've already read verse 16, but I want to hold off on discussing it until after we take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Purity and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous three segments, we've covered 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 15. We spent two segments on Paul's discussion of the general principles of how to help the widows who were really in need. That ran from verses 3 through 8. And then Paul gets very particular and specific in giving different recommendations for verses 9 through 10, how to handle the older widows, older than 60, and the younger widows in verses 11 through 15. That takes us to his summary verse before he moves on to discussions about how to handle the elders, starting in verse 17. Let me reread verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. So this verse does a number of things. It provides a recap and a summary, but it also brings in some new themes and at least pounds on them a little bit more. First, it explicitly brings women and in-laws into the position of helping other women as necessary. As Paul writes in the beginning of that verse, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them. And so we start with individual relationships, particularly those within the family. Second, related to that, I've been talking about the ideas of sphere sovereignty and subsidiarity from Protestant and Catholic social teaching so that the church can be more effective in helping those who are really in need. If people who are closest to the action have the wherewithal, financial resources, emotional maturity, capacity not to be fooled, and the like, it should be handled as locally as possible. This has a number of practical and ethical advantages. I often tell my kids when they don't clean up something, who should clean this up? Should it be me? Well, you made the mess, you should clean it up instead of foisting it on to someone else. The same thing holds for families. The first priority, the first line of defense here should be our own families to take care of our own people. If there's a failure there for whatever reason, then you move to the small group or you move to the church to take care of that. And absolutely last is local, state, and federal government. That's the idea of sphere sovereignty, having sovereignty in the spheres closest to us and then moving out. It then follows that if we take care of our business individually and within our families, the church is then going to be more effective in helping those outside of those spheres when there's no one to help take care of them. 
Paul is helpful on this in Galatians 6, 2, and 5, that he talks about loads that each of us should be able to carry on our own, should carry on our own. And verse 2, the idea of burdens, and those cannot be borne by us individually. They're too heavy for us. And some people can handle bigger loads than other people. Some people, one man's load is another person's burden. And so it depends on the individual. A lot of times we pray for lighter loads. We should be praying for stronger backs. But the fact is we all get in positions where we can't carry those burdens. And the same is true for families sometimes. Sometimes families end up with more than they can handle. And that's where small groups and then eventually the church would step in to help. Third, we see in this passage the idea of helping those who should be supported and not helping those who should not be supported. This also implies a responsibility on the part of the recipient. As I'm fond of teaching when I go through Ephesians 5, the commands to respect and love the other spouse imply a command for the other party to be as respectable and as lovable as possible. In this context, those receiving support have an implied command for them. Are they being as supportable as possible? If they're not making every effort to be supportable, then it's not a good faith effort on their part. Someone should call them to account on that. There are responsibilities for both the helper and the helpee. Notice the language of burden in verse 16 and earlier in this passage and elsewhere when Paul talks about this. We should not deny the burden that the helpees are imposing on the helpers, and that should be minimized as much as is possible. In other words, here, widows need to recognize the administrative and financial and personal burdens that they're imposing, not in the sense of guilt, but again, to put them in line with the larger incentives that we don't want people to be any greater burden than they need to be. And there are many other people who need our help. And so any given person shouldn't extend that burden any further than is necessary. I've spoken already about Marvin Olasky's great book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, written from a Christian perspective and looking at the history of welfare and charitable efforts Uh, throughout all of American history, going back to the colonial period. It's really a terrific book. But the principles that come out of that point to the complexities of poverty and trying to help people. And we've certainly seen that in this passage. So given those complexities, how difficult it is even to lay out principles, let alone particular circumstances and context, Olasky observes that typically we're stingy with what is most needed in most cases, which is time rather than money. For many, not all of us, it's easy to spin off a check for a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, depending on your income and wealth. But the problems of poverty are often spiritual rather than material. They're often things that require skills, not merely a handout. And so what's needed is actually not money as much as it is time. But giving people our time is difficult. And that's why Olasky talks about we're stingy with what is really needed. We think of ourselves in glowing terms when we spin off a hundred bucks to somebody or and a homeless guy five bucks, but really what he needs is for me to sit down and take him to lunch and talk with him, to get my hands dirty in his life and help him take the next step. And sometimes a $5 bill or a meal that I just pay for can do that, but more often than not, it's going to require much more effort. Olasky talks about how the word compassion has actually changed in the dictionary over time. If you go back to old Webster's dictionaries, It's derived from the Latin calm and pati, which means to suffer with. 
Think of the passion of the Christ for pati and calm is with, to suffer with. And the modern definition of compassion is a feeling, a sentiment, to feel sorry for someone. But the old definition is consistent with the biblical idea of compassion, which means to get your hands dirty with someone. Think of the ministry of Christ. It's no mere sentiment or emotion that Jesus expresses. He gets his hands dirty with us as people and with particular circumstances to make things better. And that's what's required for us. If we're going to make a difference, we've got to get involved with people and not be stingy with our time. Acts 3.6 is ironic in this respect. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And so Peter didn't have money, but he gave what he did have, which was time, energy, the name of Jesus, and the ability to heal through the Holy Spirit. Giving that guy a piece of silver would have been a terrible choice versus what Peter did. And giving money often causes damage, let alone not addressing the problem or the many problems at hand. Let me close with two concepts out of economics that are helpful to this discussion or really any discussion about charity and welfare. The first is what's called the welfare dilemma by labor economists. And the idea here is that as I give assistance, it becomes difficult to reduce the assistance. So if you need help, then I want to give you a certain amount of money. But if you earn some money, then I don't want to help you as much. The problem is within that there's an inherent disincentive that if you earn, let's say, $100 and I cut my assistance to you to buy $30, then you really didn't make $100. You netted $70, the $100 you got from your boss minus the $30 that I'm no longer giving you. And so there's an implied marginal tax rate or benefit reduction rate that's true whether we're talking about charity or welfare. All these problems are worse with welfare because welfare is federal rather than local, and it's so impersonal that we feel even less bothered by responding to the disincentives. But the disincentives are the same. If you're going to make things better for yourself, and my response to that is to reduce my assistance, then it undermines the incentive for you to engage in productive behavior. And this is an inherent problem, particularly with indiscriminate and indefinite assistance. This is one of the things that Olasky talks about in The Tragedy of American Compassion and became law in 1996 with the Clinton and Republican Congress welfare reform ending, quote, welfare as we know it. They imposed time limits to get around some of this and also allowed states to engage in categorization discernment that if you weren't working or applying for jobs or getting education and skills, they didn't necessarily have to give you resources in line with what Paul has talked about here in 1 Timothy 5. Now, in practice, the government has done terrible things here. They've only given you assistance if you're married, for example, or the benefit reduction rate averages 80 to 90 percent, or sometimes even over 100 percent. You probably know of cases where people would work and they would actually lose their health insurance, or they would work and be worse off financially, and this is terrible for financial disincentives. The second concept is what's called the Good Samaritan's Dilemma, and that inserts the idea of time into it. In a nutshell, the idea is that short-run assistance tends to promote long-run dependence. In other words, the greater the extent and the greater the time frame over which assistance is given, the more likely people are to get hooked on it. 
The most famous example of this is don't feed the bears. They say that the bears won't learn how to eat on their own anymore, and I'm not sure I believe that, but it's certainly the case that if you feed bears, bears will show up again at the place where the previous people fed them, and that could cause all sorts of trouble. Any kind of wise parent understands the Good Samaritan's Dilemma. What I do for my child now has implications for the future. A good teacher certainly thinks about this. How do I help my students really learn, not just excel on a test? What does this look like for the elderly, for the disabled? Very interesting and difficult and obviously context-specific. In the context of what Paul's talking about, how do we help widows and be truly helpful. We want to empower them to do what they can do. We don't want to assist them too much, but what does that look like day to day? What does that look like in terms of a program that a church would implement? What does it look like for the individual minister trying to empower the elderly or the disabled to be productive and to take their place as a productive member of God's kingdom? Important questions in Paul's day and important questions in ours. Lord, we pray that we would wrestle faithfully with these questions to help people be what they can be in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.